Well, this is our first lesson on eschatology, and we're calling this class uh, Introduction to Eschatology. Um, and let me just say a few things out of my heart concerning eschatology. First and foremost, I will make no bones about it. This is my weakest subject in the entire Bible, bar none. And it's probably because I've never really been interested in it. And uh, even years ago, when Tony Marable, who used to go to our church, he used to teach it on a regular basis. It was one of his strongest subjects. He'd teach it. It would bore me to pieces. In fact, one time in college, he sat off in the college and career groups teaching it. And I ended up going to Key West for a big chunk of the summer. And I thought, sweet, I don't have to endure any more eschatology. I come back, he's still teaching. I went, oh, my gosh, how much is there? But over the last several months, I have studied many books under many authors, and I'm still continuing to study. It's my new hobby. I go home and I read more eschatology, and I read what the authors have to say. One thing I can definitely conclude to you, nobody knows for sure much of it. And I only say that loosely. We're going to see some things in the next couple of weeks as this unfolds. I say nobody knows for sure because this stuff is all future tense. And we're looking through a glass darkly into scriptures. Even the prophets themselves, when they saw the church age coming, the Bible says they didn't have a clue what they were seeing. They did not even know what time the spirit that spoke within them signified concerning the age we live in. And those were mighty prophets who prophesied of the coming Messiah and of the coming church age uh, through the Gentile nations. And so with end times prophecy, there's a lot of disagreement among even the most studious eschatology experts. And we'll discuss some of these subjects and where they disagree. Some things we do know for sure. We know for sure there's going to be a rapture. We know for sure there's going to be an antichrist. We know for sure there's going to be a tribulation. We know for sure there's going to be a falling away. We know for sure there's a lot of stuff. Some of the stuff that we disagree upon, I don't think you could ever 100% pinpoint nail down. That's very difficult for me as a pastor because I want to give you concrete because you're my sheep and I want to feed you. And so when we come to these subjects in the next couple of weeks that nobody knows for sure, I may just present to you the two or three different opinions that are out there. Uh, some of this, as I study, I, it, it bugs me because I can't say that I believe that 100%. I can't do that with some of the subjects that we're going to look at. But we can look at where people get maybe two or three major interpretations from. One of the biggest things debated is the timeline. When do things start taking place? When do certain scriptures apply? So I just say, I like to say, this is not my strongest subject. It's getting pretty strong pretty quick with all the studying I've been doing. Uh, but we're going to look at some things and understand why we can't 100% bank on a few topics. And I would also encourage you in this is, is that uh, this should be a hope-filled study. This should very much encourage you. Uh, end times should not terrify you for the simple fact that God has not appointed any of us under wrath. So we don't have to worry about the wrath of God being poured out upon us in the end days. Uh, we have not been appointed unto wrath. And so most of the stuff that's going to come to pass is going to come to pass on the Jews and on the heathen nations that hate the Jews because the church will be gone. Which means our time is quickly running up, so you might as well run faster because this, we can see the finish line for the church. We'll cover all this stuff uh, in the coming weeks. But... I just kind of wanted to share with you some of that. If you have any questions over the next several weeks, write them down on your curriculum as you study this with us from Sunday school to Sunday school. And maybe, maybe you start a folder and you bring it with you because I don't know how many lessons this is going to end up being. 
Maybe we can have one class where we do nothing but answer questions to the best of our limited ability. And so uh, this is a, a very thorough um, study. Uh, folks are very interested in the end times, and I think it's because on the inside of all of us, we realize time is running out. In fact, I think Jeff Harris was telling me in the jail ministry, he said, it's funny, Pastor. He said, uh, these guys will get born again, and the first thing they'll do is jump to Revelation. <laughs> they'll give their heart to Jesus in the jail, and the first thing they want to study is the end of the book. And I, I laugh because I think, I don't understand the end of the book. And once you get to Revelation chapter 4, I'm lost. I'm getting a better understanding now, but the first three chapters are I can understand very well as a pastor. But there's something in people. They know the end is coming. So let's look at our lessons here. Lesson one, eschatology is the study of end times. It's a big fancy word. Some of you have said it isn't spelled the way I thought it would be spelled, but that's how you spell eschatology. It comes from two Greek words, eschatos, which means last, and of course, ology, which we're all familiar with, which means the study thereof. So the study of last things, the study of the things that come last. And it's, it's just a, a theological term. There's no biblical word that says eschatology. We're just putting, uh, it's strictly a theological term. You look it up on Webster or dictionary.com, it's going to say it's a religious term, an ecclesiastical term. For these lessons, the term eschatology in times and Bible prophecy will be used synonymously. So if I jump from eschatology to end times to uh, Bible prophecy, we're using all these things, these terms synonymously. Uh, eschatology is the study of the end times. We can talk about end time events or Bible prophecy. Though there's lots of Bible prophecy and a lot of it has already been fulfilled. In this current time, when we talk about Bible prophecy, we're referring to things that have not yet been fulfilled. In the Psalms, there's a lot of prophecy, messianic prophecy. That's all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So when we talk about Bible prophecy, we're not referring to those prophecies. We're not even re referring to some prophecies about the church. When, usually when Bible scholars and theologians talk about Bible prophecy, they are referring to the study of the end times and the prophecies about that which is to come. Eschatology is, for many, the most exciting topic in the Bible because it deals with future events, future judgments, and the conclusion on life, of life on earth as we know it. And I even remember one of the vivid memories I have as a kid is sitting in front of the big uh, boob tube as a, as a kid. We had the big clicker. Duck, 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 After Sunday morning church and watching something on Fox, U43 back then, or VH43, and a man teaching eschatology and teaching, and I just remember the pictures he put up of the ten-headed beast, uh, the seven-headed dragon, the ten horns and all that. And that, that has still burned in me. And I was probably seven or eight years old going, there's dragons coming in the end times? My God, what is this all about? Everybody's just always caught up with it. And it's exciting because it's stuff that has not happened yet. And I think maybe some of it's a soulish appeal because we like things that haven't happened yet. Uh, oh, it's maybe a daydream world. What is to come? It sure beats the humdrum of Middle Tennessee life. And uh, what will be? Well, what will be is not going to be very cool for those that are still here. For some folks, they just eat it up. Uh, however, one massive word of caution must be given concerning the eschatology. Because the events prophesied have not come to pass yet, and because the imagery shown the prophets of old concerned a future time, some of the scriptures concerning end-time events are a bit fuzzy 
and many of the subtopics of eschatology are still open for interpretation. Or I might probably more accurately say, open for a more accurate, more focused interpretation. One thing for sure about these prophecies, and we'll get into them heavily next lesson, just a few, one or two this lesson. Because we're dealing with the future, our spiritual vision can't see that far yet. But certainly as it gets closer and closer, just like if you're sailing towards land, as you get closer and closer, you can see, oh, there's buildings out there. Oh, I can see a bridge. Oh, I can see other ships. And the closer you get, the more in focus these events are becoming. And certainly uh, if, if you watch the news, uh, these things are unfolding every day. And if you watch just our society, you see much New Testament epistle prophecy coming to pass, that seducers are waxing worse and worse, and that men and women are becoming lovers of, them own, of their own selves and not lovers of God, and that the, the love of many is waxing cold, and we're even seeing a falling away among the saints of God. Christians are departing from the faith, not overtly, but very subtly. They're slowly departing from the faith, saying, you know, I kind of I believe, I agree with MTV. I kind of agree with, with this new philosophy. I kind of agree with that philosophy. And we're seeing the slow erosion of the Christian foundation. Or maybe not the Christian foundation, but Christians from the foundation. The foundation is Jesus Christ, and He remains sure and steadfast forever. This is our introduction. We're, we're throwing out all this to let you know this is a study of end-time events, but we see through a glass darkly. That's what Paul said. So if I sound like I don't have the gusto that I might with another subject, it's because I don't have the gusto I do on other subjects. <laughs> I'm not going to say this is definitely what this means when seven other authors much more skilled than I am disagree with me. I, I'd much rather yield to someone like a Hilton Sutton or a Tim LaHaye or a Bob Yandian or, or a, a, a Jack Van Impey or even a John Hagee who they've studied this thing longer than I've been alive. And they say something contrary to what I might believe. I just say... Here are three major opinions. <laughs> you figure it out. It's not going to keep you out of heaven if you turn out to be wrong. <laughs> Why bother to study it then? That's our next little section. Why bother to study this? Many students and scholars of the word for one reason or another look down upon Bible prophecy. Even a lot of pastors, and, and this has been my opinion to some degree, why bother? There's too many other things to look at in the word. And for a statement like that, the late Dr. Hilton Sutton, who was probably the, the most knowledgeable American on the subject, he would have said, you're a fool uh, because all scripture is given for inspiration, for doctrine, and all scripture is good for reproof that the man or woman of God might be thoroughly furnished. And so because the Bible is full of so much Bible prophecy, you can't really walk with Jesus and not at some point cover it. But because I am a pastor, we will probably tie some of these things back to where you are right now because that's what a pastor does. I'm not a straight teacher of the word. I pastor. And so even if I just teach Bible prophecy, a little bit of pastoring is going to come out. And that way I make it a little bit more relevant for where we're at right now today. Whereas someone like uh, uh, Jack Van Impey or Dr. Hilton Sutton, who was a strict teacher or prophet of the word, they just teach you as it is to come and they wouldn't necessarily relate it to you where you're at today. And we'll see more of that in these other lessons because as a pastor, I can't look at the spirit of Antichrist and just teach Antichrist. I have to show you where you're yielding to it. In that regard, we apply future Bible prophecy to your heart today. Paul told Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture, that includes Bible prophecy. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So all scripture is profitable. Even the begats. You know what the begats are, right? You get into the Old Testament and it says, and so-and-so begats so-and-so, begats so-and-so, begats so-and-so, begats so-and-so. That's profitable. 
Because you find out in those begats that in the lineage of Jesus, there were two Gentiles and they were both women and one was a whore. That teaches you something about grace and mercy and how God can use you, even if you're a Gentile whore, to become the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus Christ. So even the begats can begat some, something in you. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This includes the scriptures of prophecy and in time events. We must have at the least a rudimentary understanding of Bible prophecy to begin to be somewhat perfected in the things of God. If you don't know where you're headed in future, how can you prepare yourself for today? Certainly there are some Bible prophecy that is as directly applicable right now to us today. And those are found in the epistles uh, where Paul talks about that in the end times, the spirit speaketh expressly that some shall depart from the faith. You can apply that to you right now. And when it talks about the love of many a wax cold, you can apply that to you right now. But then there's other scriptures that will never apply to you, like the tribulation, because you're going to go in the rapture. And so, uh, but at the same time, we have to have an understanding of these things. The Bible calls it the glorious hope. And the hope is, is you're, you're going to get to miss tribulation by going in the rapture. And the other thing is, do you even know what's going to come next after the tribulation? What's the millennial reign going to be like? We need to understand these things. They give us a wonderful hope and a wonderful expectation of what's to come. And also, as you get a hold of these things, you realize how honestly insignificant we are because we're just another dispensation on God's giant time clock. And when this dispensation is done, we'll move into another one and we'll be Bible history. That was the church age. Do you remember that great Earl Keith of Cookville? I think it's Cookville. No, and my Bible says Cookville. Cookville. They pronounce it Cookville. He was a faithful man of God. And we might be going down in the annals of history. I'm not saying they're going to write another Bible, include us, but history will record the things we did. The Bible, uh, the, the heavenly history. And we'll just be another dispensation and we'll move into the millennial reign of Christ and do things with him there. So there's a lot more. If you get a hold of this, it'll really re help you realize, you know what? I worry about the pettiest little things. I, I, I'm fretting over the dumbest little things. I'm, I'm stressing out over shoes and we're about to go through tribulation. I'm stressing out over a handbag and there's a rapture coming and my friends aren't going with me. And you'll say, man, forget this handbag. Let me go win them to Jesus. And you win them to Jesus and they give you the handbag. This kind of study will let you put everything into perspective. It's always cool to zoom way far out and look at how small we really are. I love flying in an airplane because I get to look down at Detroit or Nashville or wherever we're flying, Louisiana, and you see how little and insignificant people are. And you fly over their houses coming in at 10 or 15,000 feet and you say like the psalmist did in Psalms 8, what is man that thou art mindful of him? <laughs> He's a little ant. <laughs> And, and the Lord is, what, what are you that you're mindful of me? I'm just one of those little ants too. That's just zooming out at 10,000 feet. Now, what if you zoom out in history 10,000 years and you see past and you see future and you see here we are, blip, just a little blip on the radar passing through time, walking through with Jesus Christ. It'll change something on the inside of you. One of the things studying all this has done for me, it's eliminated any fear out of me about the future. Just, you just don't even care. Because you know who you serve and you know who has you. And you can see this stuff played out beautifully in the scripture. Furthermore, uh, why do we study this? Well, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Furthermore, 17 books of the Bible deal with prophecy. 17. 
Only one in the New Testament, that's the Revelation. 16 Old Testament books deal with Bible prophecy and end time events. That is one fourth of the Bible. And so if you take the heart like I did back in college, then you might as well just tear one fourth of your Bible out and pitch it. We're not in that kind of habit. We're not in the mood of doing that. So we need to make sure, hey, if I don't have a hunger for this, I should develop one. And trust me, I've worked very hard to write these lessons so that they're a lot more interesting to, to you guys than it was to me 15 years ago. We, I'm sure we will keep your interest. But you will have to turn on your thinking cap and focus, especially next week when we cover Daniel's 70 weeks and what in the world that even talks about. Because you're going to have to use your mind and do some math. And uh, next week's lesson is called The Hub of Bible Prophecy. Daniel's 70 weeks, and that is a critical, critical doctrine to get a hold of. 17 books of the Bible deal with prophecy. That's one-fourth, 66 books of the Bible. you got to know these things, a little over one-fourth. These books are Isaiah through Malachi, so basically once you get done with Psalms and Ecclesiastes, Isaiah all the way to the end of the Bible, ending in Malachi and the Revelation. So all the major and minor prophets... And you can't read through those without finding something about the end of the world or the day that we live in or what we're about to go through. If one quarter of the Bible is dedicated to the prediction of future events, we would do well to familiarize ourselves with these scriptures. Uh, One of the neat things I have found is that very clearly, if you study the Old Testament, you'll find out the day of the Lord is not the day of the rapture, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a whole lesson we're working on about that. And there's one thing you find about the day of the Lord. It's going to be a wild day because the sun will be darkened, the moon will be turned to blood, stars will fall out of the sky, and it's going to be pretty brutal. You also find in studying Bible prophecy that Jesus Christ is not the squishy, gushy Oprah, Dr. Phil God that our country is turning him into. The Bible calls it the day of his indignation, the day of his wrath, the day of his furious anger. And I'm, I'm seeing now uh, there's two harvests. One harvest is of the church into heaven. There's a second harvest coming. We'll cover it more in a few weeks where the angels put in the sickle and they harvest the heathen out. And they gather them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which the Bible also calls the winepress of his wrath. And they gather all the nations of the world to this valley. And the Bible says, and God will stomp them in his furious anger. And Revelation reveals that blood will be so deep it will come up to a horse's bridle. That doesn't sound like a huggy kind of Jesus to me. The Bible prophesies that in several books of the Bible that that day is coming. And that is the God that we and I flirt with when we feel like flirting with him. I don't want to be on the end of that stomping wine press. We're not going to be because we've not been appointed under wrath. But see, the study of this gives you the balance of God. The study of this kind of prophecy, of this kind of subject, gives you the balance that God is not this squishy, lovey-dovey God that the American church has made him into. Romans 9 still says, Behold the goodness and severity of God. And he says to them, severity. He broke them off. He's sending them to hell talking to the Jews. To you, goodness, he's grafted you in. He said, But be careful, because if they were broken off by unbelief, you'll be broken off too. And he wrote that to Christians. So I think even in this study, it'll give us a balance. There has to be a healthy fear, not not an intimidation, but a healthy fear of the real and living God. We've got to be careful we don't allow our Jesus to be turned into another kind of Jesus. And that's what we're seeing in America. We're seeing our Jesus turned into another Jesus. The study of prophecy will show you the full, maybe a more full picture of the God that you serve. 
And maybe we're missing that in the New Testament because all we see is mercy and love, mercy and love, mercy and love. But when you start to see how God started this thing off with judgments and how he's going to end this thing off with judgments, then we're just kind of the juicy patty in the middle of love and mercy. But, hey, he'll cut you off, too, if you don't straighten things up. I don't mean to use that to scare you, but you cannot escape some of this stuff. So just like if all I ever know here is clay, and I know is cut up. A playful side, and boy, he gets mad. I never knew, I didn't know he could get mad like that. Well, he's been able to all along, but you just were around him in proper settings. And, and some of you, when you date, you're only around somebody in one setting, so you only see the good side. You don't see their bad side. Our God is very balanced in every area. He's as much a wrathful, vindictive God as he is a merciful, loving God. He's as much a caring God as he is a jealous God. He's as much a healing God as he is a destroying God because he's balanced. Do not let our society take your image of Jesus and make it all squishy and cotton candy and the care bears. Just give me a hug, Jesus. So that's what one of the things this study, getting real serious on me, that's one of the things this study this will see. There's coming a time where God will destroy mankind. He'll save the saints. He will absolutely destroy everybody else. And the Bible says even in heaven, the martyrs cry out and say, how long, O Lord, before you revenge us? Even in heaven, the voice of the martyrs cries out to God on his throne and says, how long, O God, before you destroy them? Even the martyrs beg for judgment. God's merciful. And maybe we're upsetting you because we are gospel preachers and we want to win the world. But there are people who do not want to be won. And their heart is set against God. And he will destroy them in the wine press of his wrath. What happens when you crush grapes? Juice comes out. What happens when you crush humans? Blood comes out. Juice comes out. And the Bible says in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Megiddo, it'll be bridal deep. Somebody ought to do the math. You engineers do the math. How much blood? How many pints in a human? Is it nine pints, eight pints? You're a doctor sometimes. <laughs> How many humans? Find the volume. I could do it as a geologist. I could find you the, va- the volume of the Valley of Megiddo, five feet deep. Tell me how many humans must be destroyed to fill that thing up with blood, not accounting for cracks, crevices, rivers, valleys, hydraulic conductivity of sand, absorption, Wow. But the Bible says the nations of the world will be gathered there and he will squish them. That's the God we serve. That's the God we give excuses to. (laughs) Welcome to Balance 101. (laughs) Let's move on before we get too discouraged. We have not been appointed under wrath. So you just keep that in mind. Sailing through time. Eschatology can be summed up in one little maxim. I learned this from Pastor Darren. And this is me kind of putting words to what he communicated to me 10 years ago. End time prophecy is like sailing on a ship. Your wake gives you a definite knowledge of where you come from, but only a general idea of where you are going. So if you'll keep that in mind, you'll understand why nobody really knows for sure exactly how all this is going to unfold. All right. It's not that we're dumb. It's not that we're ignorant. It's not that we can't hear from the Holy Ghost. But if Jesus Christ doesn't know when he's coming back and he said so, how will we ever know? We only know things by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said in John 16, the Holy Spirit only speaks what he receives from Jesus. And Jesus said, I will speak what I receive from the Father. So it's a chain of command. 
And if God the Father isn't telling Jesus, he isn't telling the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit isn't telling us. So there's some things we're just not going to be able to know. But like this sailing ship, if you've ever been on a sail ship or a boat, you can look behind you, and you thought you were going straight, but you can see this giant arc of your wake, of the bubbles if you're on a cruise ship. And it kind of, if you kind of do some rough calculations in your mind, you can kind of figure, I'm kind of going in a big circle here. Or if it's straight, you have a general idea we're going that way. But you never have any idea if in the future God's going to say, all right, hang a right. You just kind of know we're headed that direction. And you would be generally right. You can accurately connect the dots behind you and see where you've been. And that is in times prophecy. We can only connect the dots where we've been and say, oh, that makes sense. But you, th- you see, and if we can say, use this analogy, if future events is a connect the dots in front of us, you have no idea how they're going to be connected. You have general ideas. And that's why it gets studied over and 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 over again. One man I just studied said the book of Revelation is entirely sequential. Another man I just read said uh, the book of Revelation is not sequential. <laughs> these chapters go here and this chapter goes there and these are kind of reverse order. But this other guy says, nope, it's sequential. It's, it's one through uh, 22. It's sequential. And take it literally. Another man said, you can't take it literally. Some of you apply literally, some of you can't. So there's a lot of discussion and debate for that. But what we're going to do is show you what's out there. Give you the things that are known for sure and say, all right, now we're wading through fuzzy area. Now we know for sure this is going to happen and it's going to be like this. And then we kind of tread into some fuzzy area. One, One great man of God said, you cannot know the identity of the two witnesses who are going to prophesy and witness for Jesus in the Revelation. Another man said, they are exactly this person and this person. And they're both big names and great Bible teachers with tremendous legacies. But one said, you cannot know. He, in fact, he listed it on one of his top ten things unknown in the Revelation, the identity of the two witnesses. The other guy said, we know for sure it's him and him because of these five verses. <laughs> Lord, help us. <laughs> in the end, we can say it doesn't matter because we won't be here. We're going to be in heaven watching it at the marriage supper of the Lamb just hanging out. Then we'll come back and watch God smite everybody and rule with him for a thousand years. So we can only see exactly where we've come and only have a general idea of where we're going because it's future tense. Even Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow, for sufficiency for today is the evil thereof. And even, even James says, don't, don't be boasting where you're going to be a year from now. What you ought to say is if the Lord wills, we'll be there in a year. Otherwise, we'll just stay put. The wake represents fulfilled scriptures, which allow for the Bible student to easily connect the dots of God's plan. But fulfilled scriptures only somewhat point you in the direction in which you are headed. You have no real idea how the other scriptures will possibly be fulfilled. You, or we should say we, only know that they will be. Nobody can sit here and tell me exactly how it's going to be fulfilled, but we know that they will be. Think about John. Uh, If you ever studied John's gospel, John wrote his gospel the last. And he, he did it after about 70 years of reflection. And so John's gospel has things none of the other gospels have in them because John had time to reflect. And so John says this interesting thing about when Jesus cleansed the temple. And of course, we know Jesus made a whip and he, and he cleansed the temple. And it says, and this he did as it was written, the zeal of my father's house hath consumed me. That's Old Testament. So who in the world under the Old Covenant would have looked at that verse, the zeal of my father's house hath consumed me and said, that equals Jesus going to whip some people in a temple and clean it out. No way. 
not even the prophet who prophesied the zeal of my father's house hath consumed me would be able to say that this speaks of Jesus cleansing the temple twice in his ministry. But John, by the Holy Spirit, looked back and said, ah, that's why he did that. See, this is the problem with prophecy. And that's why we have to tread lightly. You with me? Oh, you're just looking at me. Do any of you know what you're doing tomorrow 100% for surety? Do you know who's texting you tomorrow? Do you know what you're having for dinner tomorrow night? Might you add something to it? Take something away. Do you know how much time you'll spend in the word of prayer tomorrow? Do you know if the Holy Spirit's going to move upon you at 7 p.m. tomorrow to pray and intercede for somebody? So don't look at me if I'm telling you some of the stuff we just don't know for sure and we cannot except perhaps we get closer to it. The cool thing is, you're going to know as much as you need to know. This is introduction. I'm just, because when I get to preaching this, you're going to see me be kind of wishy-washy, and I want you to know it's not because I don't have any beliefs. It's just because my beliefs contradict people who are much greater than me, so I'm just going to present them out there. And in the end, we just take what we need to and go from there. Examples of the wake effect. This is kind of my new theological thing I made up, inspired by Pastor Darren. The wake effect. The coming of Jesus was prophesied for many generations. Many, 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 many prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. Many things were prophesied about him, almost contradictory. How all of these scriptures would be fulfilled would be impossible to predict, but God made sure they were all fulfilled. Consider the following. This is one of my favorite examples. Jesus, the Bible says Jesus would be from Bethlehem. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art now the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now the priests and the scribes knew this, and they gave that to Herod when Jesus was born after the three wise men came and said, Where is this born king of the Jews? And they said, Must be Bethlehem, because Micah said so. Well, who would look at Micah and say that means Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem? But look at that prophecy. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. How do we know that's the Messiah? It doesn't say Messiah, it says governor. But that's referring to Jesus. Okay, that was a messianic prophecy. But look at this, another verse says Jesus would be from Nazareth. Wait a minute. He's from Bethlehem, but he's from Nazareth. He's from Bethlehem, but he's from Nazareth. He would be called a Nazarene. Matthew 2, uh, 2 23 talks about that prophecy. Yet, the Bible says that he would be called forth from Egypt. Huh? Wait a minute. So he's an Egyptian, Nazarite, Bethlehemite. God, you're confused. Nope. God says, I'm not confused. I know what I'm going to do. Amen. Out of Egypt, Hosea says, out of Egypt have I called my son. And so you see that before Jesus ever came, the Bible said he would be from three areas. Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Egypt. How in the world, before Jesus was born, could you reconcile the three of those? There ain't no way. You'd have your opinion. You'd have your opinion. You'd have your opinion. We get together at an eschatology council or a messianic council. He's going to be a Nazarite. No, he's not. He's a Bethlehemite. Nope. He's Egyptian. <laughs> what? Yeah, the Lord said he's calling his son from Egypt. Maybe he's Pharaoh. It makes no sense. But you go through Matthew's gospel. Matthew explains how all three of these were fulfilled within four or five years. That's the problem with what we're going to be looking at with end time prophecy. God is so much smarter than us. And if a bunch of knuckleheaded Americans and Europeans could tie it all together, 
God would have not been infinitely complex like he is known to be. It's going to be one of those things we walk through and we say, ah, I would have never guessed. That's right. You would have never guessed. And you take another step forward in time. Ah. And then God gets the glory because only he could have made it all work that way. The other thing you're going to find out in the study is that as much as I hate to admit it as a word of faith, man, God's in control. My word of faith part of me wants to say I can change anything I want to by faith. But I start looking at some of this and I say, God's going to do what he wants to do. It'll be in line with his word. And I, we have some liberty to bend God. You understand that. To bring mercy when God wants to judge something. But you look at this and he's going to do what he wants to do. And we just are smart to get with him and just say, Lord, just keep me close. Whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want. Amen. How could one Savior possibly fulfill these three requirements? If you were living before the days of Jesus Christ, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, you may have fumbled for an interpretation or an explanation for these verses, or you may have, been, have even called these scriptures contradictory. However, looking back at the wake of fulfilled prophecy, all you can say is, ah, that makes sense. <laughs> because of this so-called wake effect, which is my invention, by the way, that the author has loosely dubbed himself. I like that. I've just invented something. I should write a book. Eschatology must be walked out carefully and cautiously. Some events can be known for sure. Others must be only loosely interpreted. We may also give you the example of vision. Uh, the closer you get to these foretold events, the more they will certainly come into focus. And so that we, we've already stated that. This is our introduction to eschatology, just showing you the things, why this study is so complicated and why we need to take our time with it. And I probably, when we're all said and done with this, I will write this and none of it will be about the revelation. I may have to write a, second, a secondary lesson just on the revelation because the revelation itself, there's scores and scores of books written about it. And um, just to talk about the witnesses and the 144,000 and the whore upon the beast and the beast and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all that stuff and the mark of the beast. Uh, and we'd be here for two years. So I may just do a general, this may end up being just a general lesson on eschatology and a general timeline of events and then come back and write one lesson that is nothing but the revelation as we understand it currently. And so just to prepare you for all that, eschatology is a study of the culmination of the entire Bible. Eschatology has been deemed a daunting, challenging, and confusing study because it encompasses almost the entire Bible and it deals with the conclusion of mankind. Uh, Tony Marable used to say, if you understand the rest of the Bible, you can understand the end of the Bible. If you understand Daniel, you understand a lot of the symbolism that is in the Revelation. If you understand Isaiah, if you understand Malachi, if you understand some of what's in Ezekiel, if you understand what's in Zechariah, Zechariah talks a lot about uh, what's going to happen in the end of times. When you understand those types and shadows or those allegory, those images that those men saw, John's seeing the exact same thing. And when you understand that, then the revelation is a little bit more easy to unlock and understand. When you understand the book of Daniel, which is the, probably the crux or the hub of all Bible prophecy, you can understand a lot of what's unfolding in the revelation. So we got to cover all this. It's a lot. This is going to be probably the most cerebral you'll have to be in church. Most of what we do in church, you catch by the Spirit of God. You just say, whoa, this is going to require you to stay awake and focus because... 
the events to come, you have to be able to process. It's not like me saying, stop being a liar or stop being a smoker. Or, uh, you know, you need to get your heart right. This is, all right, Daniel's 70th week is this, and there's 49 weeks, and then there's 362 weeks, and then there's this, and then this has to unfold, and then you're doing the math in your head, and then there's the three and a half years, and then there's the 30 minutes of silence, and there's the seven trumpets, and the seven thunders, and the seven vials, and the seven bowls, and now you, math? When do we have to do math in church? When you start looking at running out of time, you have to do math. So it is a culmination of the whole Bible. And that's why I don't blame it if anybody wants to go to godly women and just be taught how to stop being an American woman. <laughs> but if you're up for this study, then put your thinking cap on. And uh, these lessons will be chock full of a lot of verses. Like I said, one book I'm working through right now, the author says, in this book, there are 6,000 scriptural references. And there's probably, honestly, 100 Bible references a page just about. As he says, and this will happen, and he lists seven verses that back it up. So then you have to stop and go look up those seven verses. This is why this thing is so critical. The other thing you start dabbling into when you get into eschatology is extra-biblical history, or that is history that's not covered in the Bible. And when you start trying to decipher what is the horror of Babylon and the mystery of Babylon and the Babylonian system, you very quickly run into the man named Nimrod. And the Bible only says about three things about Nimrod. But the rest of world history records everything else that's missing. When you step outside the Bible to interpret the Bible, you've got to be very careful. And you've got to make sure you have a tight leash on yourself or you go down a weird dark hole and come up goofy. And so that's why we tread very carefully and uh, we're mindful. Just to throw it out there, most folks believe Nimrod is Gilgamesh, if you understand the story of Gilgamesh. And uh, Nimrod was more of his title, whereas Gilgamesh was his name. Nimrod means re rebellion against God, or the great rebeller. So Nimrod was more like a title. Nimrod built the Tower of Babel. He was a great hunter of men. He gathered men in a rebellion against God. But that's another story. He is credited in archaeological history and world history for inventing Babylonian worship. And he and his Jezebel wife, they invented, they actually predated Jesus Christ by creating a cult where the woman had a supernaturally conceived son who died. His name was Tamaz. And every year he'd be raised up from the dead in the spring and everybody would worship his resurrection. They invented that about the time of the Tower of Babel. And that has carried on to this day. They called her Queen of Heaven. That's what the Catholics call Mary, though. And so uh, there's a lot that has been written about Nimrod and Babylonian worship being coughed up or revomited in the Catholic Church, which is why many eschatologists believe that the Catholic Church is the Babylonian system and the Antichrist will fall out of there because Rome's built on the seven hills that the Revelation talks about. Other folks say it's not Rome. Come on, get over it. A lot of those folks are born again and spirit-filled. Leave them alone. They're just goofy, like you and I are goofy. We just don't worship the Queen of Heaven, which Ezekiel and Jeremiah rebukes pretty harshly. So there's a lot of stuff that we're going to have to cover in all of this. But I would caution you, let's stick with the scriptures. Uh, you, you stay off the Internet. You'll get to some weird stuff. You'll be wearing secret rings and trinkets and, I don't know, down with Nimrod or <laughs> go, don't go read Gilgamesh unless you have to in British lit or something or world history. Also critical to understanding Bible prophecy is the fact that all prophecy, with the exception of the rapture, revolves around God keeping His promises to Israel. You're going to see that very quickly, that when you start dealing with Bible prophecy, once the church is gone, everything reverts back to Jewish time. Right now, God is not dealing with the Jews. He has cut them off. He has broken them off. 
Even Paul said multiple times, I kick the dust off my feet at you and I go to the Gentiles. That was the Holy Ghost signifying that. The Lord said, I kick my, my feet off at the Jews because they have rejected their Messiah and I go to the Gentiles. He prophesied several times, I will go to a people that be no people and I will make them my people. And they accepted him. We, the Gentiles have accepted him. We live now in what is called by the Bible, the times of the Gentiles. But once the church is gone, it will no longer be the times of the Gentiles. It will be the Jewish time again. We'll cover that in the next couple of lessons about Jewish time versus church age time. What you'll see from Revelation chapter 4 on, everything is Jewish allegory. Everything's in Jewish terminology. And God will begin once again, once the church is gone, dealing with the world through the nation of Israel. The 144,000 witnesses are all Jews, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. Right now, this is the next lesson. We cover dispensations again. If you haven't taken Christianity 101 or how to study the Bible, you have to understand dispensations. Right now, the dispensation we're in is the church age. God deals with mankind through the church. Under the last dispensation, which was the age of the law, God dealt with the earth through the Jews and through the law. When the church is gone, the Jews will rise back up as God's people and God will deal with the earth once again through the Jews. So like I said, you got to put your thinking cap on here. This stuff you just have to be able to cerebrally process. And that's why we're going to pray that God gives you wisdom to understand, just a quick understanding to process all this. In the end, it'll really encourage you because you'll understand where you're at. The Bible says of the sons of Issachar in Chronicles that they knew the time and the season they were in and what they ought to do. And if you can be like the sons of Issachar and know the time and the season that you're living in, you'll know what to do. You'll know what to worry about and what not to worry about. So don't come here just thinking to be spoon-fed. You're going to have to cut this thing up yourself. Write questions down. Maybe if we have time, we can even ask questions during the class. But some of our lessons have gotten to be three and four pages because I just don't know where to cut the thing off and make a part two on the lesson. So understand this. A lot of this Bible prophecy revolves around God keeping his promises to Israel. Bible prophecy begins with Israel. It was delivered unto Israel, and it will conclude with Israel. That kind of lets you know we're just kind of pipsqueaks on the whole radar. Not to belittle us. We're Gentiles, though. God did not make a promise to us. He made a promise to Abraham. And he's going to keep that promise to Abraham. But in there, because he is a merciful God, he said, Abraham, his descendants, as many as are under the sun, all the nations and the Gentiles. So uh, because of my mercy, I'll let you Gentiles get in on it. And we can see how merciful it is because right now the church age has become the longest dispensation that there is. Eschatology, a hope-filled study. Dr. Hilton Sutton said the Bible is designed to give us hope. Therefore, even the study of eschatology should build hope in our life. He, he said in one of the last services he was in, he died a few months ago. He said, God is a God of hope and he has not given us the spirit of fear. Therefore, God would not end his book with a nightmare. So the revelation is not a nightmare. It ends with a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, glory, new bodies. It is, a, it is the climax of the ages and it's exciting. Eschatology should not put fear in you. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind or a disciplined mind. The word of God has been given to build faith, not fear. Do not allow the study of Bible prophecy to scare you. It is true. Many bad things will happen in the end, but not to those that walk uprightly before their God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So that concludes our introduction to eschatology. As I have said, this is my weakest subject. Bear with me. Ask lots of questions. 
We will work all this out together. Appreciate you guys being interested in this. Love you.